All right, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Does everybody have their Bibles open? (laughs) From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that that what your Bible says? Still getting there. Still getting there? That's what I printed out, Latin Vulgate Bible translation. That's what that says. Do do penance? What's your translation? Repent. Oh, okay. I I will not read the Vulgate then. I'll read the King James here. Uh, 4.17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That sounds better. That's, that's more like it. So we'll get, you say that it's the Vulgate, though, are you, I, and I, I'm not, not questioning you, I'm just asking, that's actually an English translation of the Vulgate. So do you know for certain that that's the actual translation of the, of the Vulgate? I, I'm just asking because I don't know. We're, we're going to get there. Okay. We're going we're to we're get into the Latin. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what. When was that translated? What, what was the date of that translation? Um, uh, October sixteenth, two thousand twenty. No, I just printed it out. I have no idea. This is somebody on the internet. Um, it, but we'll get into the Latin. So we'll get into Latin. The book, uh, the Vulgate by Jerome. So, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, your word. We thank you that you called us to repent, to change our mind, to turn from our sin, and to turn to you. Um, And we thank you for preserving those words of yours, your precious words to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to uh, kind of do a little bit of review, not too much, just a little bit of review. We, We are now on lesson lesson five. We did an intro. We did the doctrinal basis for the preservation of Scripture. We went through how God preserved the Old Testament, and we talked about how God preserved the New Testament and the age of the early church. And today we're going to get into the Reformation and into the age of modernism. Um, <clears throat> And I think you're going to start seeing a pattern here, and this happened in the Old Testament as well as after the time of Christ, is that you're, you're going to see, because of sin, that the church oftentimes declines and has a period of revival in which the, the scriptures are restored, like just the time of Josiah, where it's discovered for the, uh, in the temple. And you have these periods of upheaval that God causes And one of these is going to be the Reformation. And we will talk a little bit about how, uh, and you could argue, you know, um, your uh, Sunday school lesson in the U.S., the time of um, the the First Great Awakening, uh, would be an example of one of those upheavals. A time of revival. Um, and we'll talk about how the scriptures and the discovery of the original languages during the Reformation played a role in the revival of the church. Um, so, um, but let me go back and just do a little brief 
review of last week's uh, lesson four, uh, my conclusion my conclusion was <clears throat> Satan first attempts to stomp out the church of God through persecution, but this failed as the church only spread through the flames and tortures of the martyrs. The church was soon tested by a new strategy of attack, that of heresy, <clears throat> namely Gnosticism and Arianism. Eventually, <clears throat> um, eventually, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the church would prevail. Biblical Christology and the gospel of Jesus Christ began to spread through the faithful preaching of teachers from the school of Antioch, like John Chrysostom. On the church, as the church settles into orthodoxy, the traditional text is carefully compiled in Antioch, where exegetical, with, where exegetical precision is most valued, and then carried to the church's seat of power in Constantinople, where it is carefully preserved for centuries by professional scribes in the Byzantine scriptoriums who knew Greek, uh, by scribes who knew Greek. These scribes preserved the scriptures from 337 AD until the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. Constantinople had used a Koine Greek Bible for over a thousand years. Constantinople refugees would then flee to Europe, bringing their precious manuscripts with them. Thirteen years after the fall of Constantinople, 1466, a boy was born in Rotterdam in today's Netherlands, um, and we know this boy to be um, Desiderius, Desiderius, I'm going to butcher his name, Desiderius Erasmus. Okay, and that brings us up to the time of the Reformation. Um, The stance of Rome at the time, uh, at this time, uh, was very much against the Bible. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church. The Fox's Book of Martyrs record that in 1517, 17 people were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English instead of Latin. So parents who wanted their children to know how to, to say the, the Lord's Prayer uh, were burned at the stake for teaching it not in Latin in their children to their children. In 1492, Erasmus is ordained a priest. Catherine, could you get me some? Oh, just right here, thank you. In 1492, Erasmus is ordained a priest. Uh, No record. Uh, There's no record that he actually functioned as a priest. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, 1509, after multiple trips to England, France, and Italy, he begins to teach at Cambridge University um, in 1514. So you can see he starts to travel around quite a bit. Um, Besides a sojourn in the University of Louvain, and a time in uh, Freiburg um, in Prisgau. He remains in Basel until his death in 1535. Basel is in Switzerland. Um, His travels aid in making him the most famous scholar of his day as well as uh, one of the most prolific writers. 
His collective works fill 10 large volumes. Um, So what were some of the influences of Erasmus? Well, um, there was a famous scholar named Valla uh, from 1405 to 1459 uh, of the Italian Renaissance who had a high regard for classic literature. He argued that the the decline of civilization was due to the loss of Greek and Latin languages, and Valor favored the Greek New Testament over the Latin Vulgate. Um, But however, a counter to this was the scholastic theologians. They insisted that the Latin Vulgate by Jerome was providentially preserved through the Western Church. Um, See, it you have a split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. The Western Church was Roman Catholic. The Eastern Church was the, the Greek Orthodox. And, um, you know, you don't want... The, the people over here in the Western Church did not want to admit that the scriptures had been uh, providentially preserved in the Greek on the East Eastern Church because that's, the, that's a different, uh, different church that they were... Um, not considered uh, orthodox. Um, But then there was this new view that came about, and Erasmus adopted this new view. It's called the common view, that the New Testament had been preserved primarily in the original Greek and secondarily in the Latin. Um, uh, Erasmus held this view as well as other scholars, such as John Colette, Thomas More, Jacques Lefebvre, who sought and they sought to reform the Roman Catholic Church from within the church. And so Erasmus was in this effort of trying to reform the Catholic Church. They could see that there was moral decline and um, and abuses of the Catholic Church and they they sought they thought that revealing the scriptures in their original languages was important to restoring uh, the church. In 1514, we have the publication of the Complutensian Polyglot. Well, why is it called a polyglot? Well, a polyglot is basically a book that has several columns and it's multiple languages um, in parallel. It's like a parallel book uh, of literature. Uh, Complutensian was a was a university in Spain. However. Um, that was not sanctioned for distribution until 1520. This gave Erasmus an open window, and in 1516, between 1516 and 1535, Erasmus published five editions of the Greek New Testament, most of which included both the Greek text and a Latin translation. Now, it wasn't the Vulgate. Erasmus was attempting to correct the Vulgate with the Greek, he was basically trying to reform the church and say, look, listen, this is what the Latin Vulgate says, but if you look at the original Greek, here's what my Latin, would, how it would translate. <clears throat> now, why did he, was he allowed to do this? Well, he was such a famous and prolific writer. He was such a famous academic that the church couldn't touch him. There were so many universities that uh, welcomed Erasmus into their fold and and considered him of such high regard that he uh, was not suffering under persecution. Plus, he didn't outwardly, um, he wasn't outwardly uh, radical, as radical as Luther, you might say, in, in his uh, polemic 
uh, toward the Catholic Church. <clears throat> so he published between 1516 and 1535, and that's, uh, that's where I have here is Erasmus Greek. He publishes five editions. Um, and he uses as his basis of the Greek, um, let's see, seven different Greek manuscripts that he had come across in his travels throughout Europe. He had seen more, and he had made copies and notes from others, but this was um, the manuscripts that he had uh, collected himself. He, we have 11th century manuscript of the Gospels, Acts, and the Epistles. We have a 15th century manuscript of the Gospels, a 12th through the 14th century uh, manuscript of Acts and Epistles, and a 15th century manuscript of Acts and the Epistles, a 12th century manuscript of Revelation, a 12th century manuscript of the Gospels, and a 15th century manuscript of the Gospels. Um, and he drew all of these together. And as you can tell, these are quite late, but they were professionally done by the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, again, from Constantinople. They had made their way out of the flames or the destruction of the Ottoman Turks um, and made their way to Erasmus. Um, <clears throat> so Erasmus Greek was very revolutionary. Matthew 3, 2 and 4, 17 in the Latin Vulgate reads, um, in English it would be, uh, do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Erasmus pointed out that the Greek matineo means... Uh, <clears throat> means to return to your senses instead of um, I thought I did have the, lat the Latin here uh, I have uh, when I talk about justification we'll be talking about that but <clears throat> oh yeah the translated to Latin he translated recipiscite which means returns to your return to your senses. I forget what it was that the Vulgate was translated to, but it was it was two words. One meant um, uh, to do to something uh, to do, and then um, uh, penance to do penance. To, um, Luther argued it is more properly to translate metaneo to a change of mind. <clears throat> to change your mind about your sin, to turn from your sin, to repent, is to change your mind and to recognize what your sin really is um, and and your, your disposition toward it. Instead of loving it, you're hating it. You're changing your mind about your past, uh, your sins. <clears throat> Jerome's use of the word justificare, which means justice is righteous, and facare is to make. Um, <clears throat> Luther said that the Greek dikaiosun is really a judicial word. It's a, it's a um, forensic word. It means in the, in the courtroom of God to declare righteous, not to make righteous, as, as Latin, the Latin word had been translated. So here's... <clears throat> Two foundational doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Penance and the whole system of penance um, through uh, you know, the various um, uh, you know, ways of doing penance. 
and justification, those two doctrines now are in question how, the, how Rome had considered those two doctrines. Um, Thomas Linacray, one of Erasmus' instructors and a professor at Oxford, when he, um, he, he went on to, to found the Department of, of, for Greek Studies in Oxford, after he discovered the Greek manuscripts, he wrote in his diary, either this, which is the original Greek, is not the gospel, or we are not Christians. That was how different the Greek was from the Latin Vulgate in his mind. Um, a friend of mine, I remember um, uh, when I first became a Reformed Christian, a friend of mine who went to my church, he said this, he said, all history is church history. What did he mean by that? Um, what does that have to do with the fall of Constantinople and of by the Ottoman Turks? Um, was that an accident? No, no. What was God doing in the fall of Constantinople? He was bringing the scriptures to the West, where in, uh, which had a greater appreciation for... Uh, the, uh, they had um, uh, Augustine, and they had some uh, much more of a, a deeper understanding of the theological issues, and were not as steeped by the Eastern, like the Eastern Church, in Greek Greek philosophy. And when you have the mixture of the East into the West, and of the Scriptures plus the theological grounding of Augustine. And remember, Luther was what an Augustine monk, okay, in the order order of uh, Augustine of orders. Uh, 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 yeah, had studied that and in great detail. And you have this mixture of sound theology with the Word of God. Um, God in His providence brings about a reformation. Um, and so when, when my friend said all history is church history, what he's really saying is that God is working out all of history, all of the events of history, for what purpose? For his glory and for the sanctification of his church, his people. He is about the, the work of saving his church, and he is using um, what seems like a, you know, uh, um, in, inconsequential uh, event such as the fall of Constantinople uh, to bring about the scriptures to us today. Um, so it's, uh, it's amazing to see God's providential hand in all of this. Um, we also, after Erasmus, have Robert Esteen, who was a Catholic who converted to be a Protestant later in life. Um, from He lived from 1503 to 1559. And he, in 1526, assumes control of his father's printing shop. Um, he prints four editions, and he becomes known as a very... He's such an esteemed printer. Um, at one time, he becomes the king's printer um, uh, for the, the, um, the king of France, I believe it is. Um, and it is very, uh, very prestigious in his quality of his prints. 
Um, from 1546 to 1551, he prints four editions of the Greek New Testament, the last of which was the first to divide the New Testament into verses. So we get verses um, from this man, um, Robert Esteen, or some also known as Robert Stevens, uh, or you'll hear the Latin, that's where you get the Latin Stephanus. Have you ever heard of the Stephanus uh, Greek New Testament? Well, that's uh, because he went by Robert Stevens, not any relation to me, sadly enough. Um, and um, 1550 edition contains apparatus. Um, what, now, what apparatus is, is that it's uh, notes about the various variances in the manuscripts. Um, and that would be from the 15 manuscripts that he was using. In 1550, he had to immigrate to Geneva to flee violence of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so his life was in danger. So he fled to, to Geneva, uh, Geneva, Switzerland, which is on the border of France. Um, Theodore Beza, in 1519 to 1605, you probably, many of you know Beza as the successor of Calvin. Um, uh, he, uh, he uses Estine's Greek New Testament as, as a basis for his editions, and Beza edits the Greek New Testament nine times between 1565 and 1604. Um, very, very light editing, what we're talking about. Not, I mean, there's maybe 50 or so um, corrections that he makes to the Greek, but mostly what, what Beza is concerned about is his Latin translations of the Greek. And so many times when he's making out his own editions, it's not so much to change the Greek, but to change the Latin, which is uh, Erasmus Latin. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Here, here's a quote from Irina Bacchus. Um, uh, he says, Beza's 1582 edition differed from Stephanus in about 40 places. So we're talking about, and they're very minor uh, changes. He also contributed to the Geneva Bible, along with Knox, Calvin, Whittingham, Coverdale, and others. And then last, we have the Elsevier family. They're famous printers of several generations of Flemish ancestry. They printed three editions, 1624, 1633, and 1641, of which were reprints of Beza's 1565, except for about 50 minor differences. The 1633 became known as um, in, uh, the 1633 edition became known as the Textus Receptus because of an advertisement in the preface stating in Latin, "Therefore, you have the text now received by all, in which we give nothing altered or corrupt." And so that's where you hear the phrase. Um, the Texas Receptus, which is, becomes the foundation for many English translations. So let's turn our focus now to some of the translations that were made of these Greek manuscripts. Um, and, and of course, I want you to understand this is, this is made possible also by the invention of the printing press. And in fact, um, Garmond, I think there is a special uh, Greek um, uh, that that was actually paid for by the king. It was a Greek font that um, that I believe that um, 
Robert Esteen uh, was first able to use, uh, which is meant, which was considered to be a, a masterpiece, basically, of type, type uh, typography, um, which was art, artistry. Uh, this is making this in in. I'm not exactly sure how they made the movable type, but the movable movable type was just um, was just a a, uh, a master a masterpiece at that time. It was considered the peak of typeset um, during this time. Typeset technology. <clears throat> so English translations. In 1526, Tyndale published his translation of the New Testament from Worms, Germany. Why was he in Germany? He was in. Um, uh, he was fleeing for his life um, from the Catholic Church. He couldn't print anything in uh, in England. He had to ship his uh, Bibles uh, in sacks of grain and stuff to England and smuggle them in. Um, uh, so 1526, Tyndale published his translation of the New Testament in Forms German. He uses Erasmus Greek and Latin New Testament as well as Luther's German version of the Vulgate. And then the Geneva Bible during the reign of Bloody Mary from 1553 to 1558, almost 300 Protestants were burned at the stake. She also ordered all English translations of the Bible to be burned. Some 800 English scholars fled the country. Many found refuge in Geneva in Switzerland. A project to produce an English translation of the Bible was soon started, the Geneva Bible. Um, a New Testament was completed in 1557. And that's where I have here the Geneva, Geneva Bible. <clears throat> and the first full Bible appeared in 1560. In the coming years, over 150 editions were issued of the Geneva Bible. Um, called the Bi- it was called the Bible of the Pilgrims. Uh, that, that's because it was brought over by the Pilgrims um, when they um, when they landed on Plymouth in 1620. They brought with them a Geneva Bible. It was a first study Bible, included over 300,000 words of commentary on the Scripture. First, uh, so this was a major influence on um, on the Protestant Re- Reformation was these notes that Geneva, uh, the Geneva, Geneva Bible uh, carried with them. Uh, it was the first English Bible with verse divisions. Um, now the Geneva Bible, if I'm not uh, mistaken, also, also was translated into, I know there was a, an Italian version. I believe there was a French version as well. Um, but uh, this was a very important, Geneva was sending out the word of God. Um, was very, as you know, there was a, that was a center of uh, um, Reformation theology because of Calvin and, and Beza. Then we have the King James Version. King James the, the Sixth of Scotland ascended to the throne of England as King James the First of England in 1603. Now he was a devoted Anglican. Uh, the project started in 1604 and was completed in 1611. Um, though it was an Anglican Bible, and they did not like the um, the Presbyterian or uh, form of government, they were much more of a um, 
what's the form of government for the for the Anglican Church? The uh, Episcopalian, yeah. They were the Episcopalian form of government, which is a, a top-down hierarchy versus, uh, you know, Presbyterian uh, form of government. They they did not like a few of the notes of the Geneva Bible, um, and uh, and so they they said let's dispense of the notes um, or the of the uh, the commentary of the Bible, um, and they but they trans the translation work was done by forty seven scholars working in six committees based in Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster. These com- committees did include scholars scholars with Puritan sympathies, as well as high church advocates. Um, the marginal notes uh, included cross references and variant trans uh, variant translations of the English. New Testament um, translators used the 1598 edition of Beza. The Old Testament translators used the 1524 edition of the Hebrew Rabbinic Bible of Daniel Bomberg, a Christian printer of Venice. And he had several converted um, uh, Hebrew scholars under him as a printer. Uh, So the, the Reformation experienced a real purification of the text um, these scholars were so vigorous when they translated the, the, and this was under the king's command, they were each of these 47 scholars were to make their own, in their, in their own committee, they were individually to translate the Bible. Then they were to come together as a committee and come together as a, um, of these three schools and consolidate their work and review their own work and then from the three schools, they were just to appoint their two top scholars, send them together, and then compile and, re- and edit each other's own copy. So they were independently translating it over and over and over again to get the Greek and, uh, translation into the English as accurate as possible. Um, and so uh, this was under the order of the king. He wanted a, he wanted it to be the best academic, academically most astute English translation. He wanted his name on it. If it was going to be his name on it, it needed to be the best. And so, yeah. Um, Isn't it also true that their work wasn't original. They were they were. I've read ninety percent of the King James was just a Tyndale. Yeah, I mean they were, they may have been influenced by that because they were, uh, but they were reading the Greek, you right. know, the, and they were basing it all on the Greek. Yeah. I've heard, I was going to ask the same thing because I've heard that same statistic that it was ninety percent Tyndale. The point being that the greatest credit in the history of the King James really belongs to Tyndale. To Tyndale, so. yeah. There is no doubt that Tyndale was um, was a scholar. Yeah. And his his uh, mastery of the Greek would be very influential. Um, so, the Reformation. Uh, some have argued that the reformers engaged in textual criticism. Textual criticism is a modern term terminolo- or term. Um, however, what selection and analysis of texts that they did perform was the- was theological in nature, and governed by their Christian faith and believing presuppositions. This stands in stark contrast to the modern so-called neutral approach to textual criticism. So I wanted to make that 
Steve. So now we'll move on to the, the modern era, the, uh, the age of modernism. Um, let's move up to the 1700s, the 18th century. Frederick II, King of Prussia, was a religious skeptic in contrast to his Calvinist father, and, a, and he was a deist, deist. He openly encouraged the Age of Enlightenment. Um, and Johann, so this is, he was king of Prussia. Now, Prussia is Germany. Prussia is basically a section of Germany. Okay, he was, he is revered, he was revered as a philosopher king, um, Many of the Germans looked up to him during the First World War and in and the Second World War especially. Um, and during his reign, he invited more secular uh, humanism uh, and, and religious skepticism. So we have jo- Johann Semmler in 17... He was from, uh, born in 1725 to 1791 suggested the New Testament manuscripts had been edited. Believes, he believes the canon and the text of scripture to be accidents of history and considered them to be neither inspired nor authoritative. This is from uh, page 21 of Leda's book. J.J. Um, Griesbach, Griesbach, um, 1745 to 1812, was a pupil of Semler and professor, uh, and he was an open skeptic of the New Testament text. In 1771, he writes, the New Testament abounds in more glosses, additions, and interpolations purposely introduced than any other book. So it's a flawed, the Greek New Testament's flawed. He's noted for his critical editions of the New Testament. He developed the rule the hard reading is to be performed to the easy reading. So the harder the Greek, the more messed up the Greek is, the more choppy it is, the, the less it flows, the better it is. He believed Orthodox Christians had corrupted the New Testament. Whenever a variance appeared, the Orthodox reading was to be rejected. He says, quote, the most suspicious reading of all is the one that yields a sense favorable to the nourishment of piety. End of quote. That's from uh, Edward F. Hills, page 85. Here's another quote. When there are many variant readings in one place, that reading which more than others manifestly favors the dogmas of the Orthodox is deservedly regarded as suspicious. Okay, so why, why is he saying this? Why are the modernists... Okay, Griesbach, who was a... Who is a, a just so I want you to know how important, how influential Griesbach is. Westcott and Hort considered him. Now, now, these are German higher critics and lower critics. They are they are unbelievers. They don't believe the scriptures because in Germany, what's in flourishing is liberalism. Okay, and so they deny the scriptures. But one of the one of the peop- two people that consider Griesbach to be very important and they adopt Griesbach's scientific method is Westcott and Hort. And Westcott and Hort, let me kind of 
draw the picture here. So you have Germany over here. I'm not going to draw all of Europe and then the United States. <laughs> Sorry. But you have Germany over here. You have England. And then you have the US. What we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about how this, how this kind of started in Germany and then made its way to England and then made its way to the United States. This whole concept of textual criticism, and which grew out of higher criticism. So higher criticism is what? It's, it's rejecting, it's, it's looking at the scriptures um, critically and questioning everything, um, question, questioning the presuppositions of the scriptures. <clears throat> and interject with, you know, interject, uh, Pastor Sharp, if you... Um, if you have any comments about this whole higher versus lower criticism. but um, So, uh, Griesbach. Um, why, why is it that they have a problem with orthodoxy? So what they saw was that they were starting to see these manuscripts pop up that were, that were poorly written okay, and very ancient and had been rejected by the early church. Some of these might be Western texts who were written by scribes that didn't know Greek. They just knew Latin. Um, many of them may have been Gnostic texts from uh, the Alexandrian library um, at, out of Alexandria. But anyways, they started to see these texts that were, that were difficult, had difficult readings. And so they came up with a theory. They said... Christostom. Remember I told you about the history of Antioch and how there was sound preachers there and they brought that to Constantinople. They looked at that church kind of suspiciously and they said, hmm, I bet you they smoothed out the Greek okay, and, and made, it, made it more orthodox. Because what was happening during that time in the upheaval was the foundation or the or the settling of the church into Orthodox Christianity, into Trinitarianism, and was rejecting Arianism. And so if they ever saw a, a, a reading that was Orthodox, um, that was Trinitarian, they would, re, they would just say, oh, that was probably a revision. That's probably just an addition. And instead of Antioch being a school that recognized the true scriptures, Antioch, to their eyes, became a school that revised the, the scriptures. Does that make sense? And so that's why they come up with this rule, the, 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 more, the shorter, the more difficult the Greek, the more authentic it has become in, that, in their scientific uh, reasoning. So then we get to Charles Hodge. He studies in Germany. For a year, and you might be wondering, what are these guys doing studying in Germany? This is from the in Princeton, United States. When is that that he went to Germany? Um, in eight, two years, eighteen twenty-six and eighteen twenty-eight, Charles Hodge studies in Germany. Archibald Alexander, his protege, he says this. Um, uh, Charles Hodge's mentor, uh, he warns him careful to, uh, to be careful of German skepticism. He says, you breathe a poisonous atmosphere. 
And so what the, the idea back then in Princeton was, let's go over to Germany and let's study what they're, what they're saying so that we can, be, we can be knowledgeable about it and then criticize it and, be, and, and evaluate it biblically. Um, so, so he was very careful. Charles Hodge was not influenced um, to any degree that I could detect uh, from, um, from what Letus is saying. However, um, so in 1859, so Hodge is over there between 1826 and 1829, 1859, Darwin's Origin of the Species is published. This rocks the world. And then one year later, 1860, two recent discoveries of manuscripts are found, Sinaiticus, or Aleph, and, and B, Vaticanus or beta, are made available through the work of Trajellus and Tischendorf. Then B.B. Warfield, in 1876, studies in Germany for, for a year. And in 1878, B.B. Warfield becomes a professor in New Testament languages and literature at Western Theological Seminary, where he seeks to integrate textual criticism with traditional Orthodox view of divine inspiration. Um, lower criticism, uh, which is the textual criticism, is a scientific approach, and he began, he uh, he considers that to be an ally for discovering the text, claiming modern criticism has gone step by step with traditional faith. End of quote. He goes beyond what anyone in Princeton had ever done, and he doubts the inspiration of one of the resurrection accounts, the ending of Mark. Uh, declares that this resurrection account is, quote, no part of the word of God. We are not then to ascribe to these verses the authority due to God's word. And that's something that B.B. Warfield um, published in his in the Sunday School Times um, article in December 2nd, 1882. And in 1881, Westcott and Hort from England. So we have... Three spots over here in Germany, Westcott and Hort in England, and over here in the United States, we have B.B. Warfield. Westcott and Hort in 1881 publishes their Greek New Testament based on Vaticanus and Sidianicus, along with their introduction and appendix, where they claim the New Testament has survived in almost perfect condition in these two manuscripts. Their theory becomes tremendously popular overnight. Warfield gives, uh, this is a quote from Press, uh, uh, from, uh, from Letus's book, quote, Warfield gave it a review that would forever endear it to conservatives in the United States saying, we cannot doubt but that the leading principles of method which they have laid down will meet with speedy universal acceptance. What are these methods? The textual crit criticism methods. And next week, I'm going to be going through their, their methods, the methodology of textual criticism. Um, their rules that they use to evaluate the Greek text, and we'll talk about them, each, each one, each of these rules, and evaluate whether they're biblical or not. Uh, they furnish for us us uh, the first time with a really scientific method. 
that's uh, that's the review um, that Warfield gave in Presbyterian Review in 1882. Southern Baptist accepts Westcott and Hort translation via A.T. Robertson. Um, Warfield develops his own handbook on textual criticism. Uh, the fi- um, He says, the faithful follow the same method as the Germans, treating the scriptures like any other piece of literature. That's what um, he says in his handbook on textual criticism. We're not to treat the Bible and the Greek any differently than any historical book. We're to evaluate it scientifically, the oldest is best, regardless of what the church believed about it, regardless of what theological context that that text may have grown up in, we're just going to look at it like any piece of literature. Um, In 1887, B.B. Warfield accepts chair at Princeton as a protege of Charles Hodge. Um, We have already dealt with how B.B. Warfield co-ops the term infallible and it applies, uh, which applies to both the autographs and the apographs. Autographs being the originals, the apographs are the faithful copies. When the, when the Westminster Confession of Faith said the scriptures are infallible, they were saying that both the copies, the, uh, the original language, the originals and the copies, and B.B. Warfield um, replaces or uh, mixes uh, co-ops this term uh, infallible and, and replaces it with the modern concept of inerrancy, which is a brand new term, inerrancy. And that only applies narrowly to the original manuscripts. And he says, now we're going to just use scientific method to discover what the scriptures really are. We don't know what they are, so we've got to use science to find that out. Um, so my conclusions is, in the, in the last few minutes here, and we'll close in prayer, Reformate, the Reformation brings, by God's providence, as uh, a restoration of his word. This culminates in the work of the author, uh, authorized version in English, or the King James Version. Satan continues to attack God's word through faithless German skepticism. This makes its way into modern evangelicalism through the influence of B.B. Warfield, And this brings us back into a dark age where we are in need of a second reformation. In the coming weeks, we'll discuss discuss the text, uh, the methods of critical text, the history and character of the manuscripts behind the critical text. Um, But I want you to know that there is no such thing as neutrality. Okay? When it comes to evaluating the Greek... you can't be neutral about it, okay? You are either believing or you're a non-believer. And so this whole myth of neutrality, and this, this applies not only to textual manuscripts, but also to apologetics. I mean, people talk about how it's so important to come from, uh, to argue from neutrality. Um, but really, our hearts are either an enemy of, of God in our fallen, in our unconverted state, or we are uh, brought to become changed by the Holy Spirit to become lovers of God. So let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your providence and, and raising up the church through your Holy Spirit, guiding her through your word and bringing about these revivals of 
your word and of your Holy Spirit, working in the hearts of men to discover the gospel, making us Christians uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give you thanks. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.